Welcome back to Matinees on Main Street. My name is Alan, and today we talk about change. This is the kind of change that alters the direction of a growing novelty as it turns into an industry. This is not the organic change you get from growth, but the artificial change that attempts to stifle growth and move it in ways that may not be healthy for business growth or for the public that supports that fledgling industry. Unfortunately, American business does grow this way more often than we expect, and in the 19th century, a number of American business trends were moving in directions that were not healthy for Americans or America in general. This is not a modernist opinion being projected upon the past. Even then, people were aware of these problems. It's just that there was no way to alter these changes in a country that validates itself through independence, wealth, and economic power. This episode begins the 15-year legal war inside the heart of what could be considered a very young film industry. The fight was over economic power and control, and the weapon being used was the patent. The battle plans devised included lawsuits, court rulings, and even the questionable business practices of the day, such as the forming of trusts. But we could also include physical threats and company takeovers. The results would end up being the formation of a number of fly-by-night film companies, the supposed shifting of production to the West Coast, the rise of the feature film, and the destruction of the most powerful of the film companies at that time. It's easy to see this entire story as a case of pride goeth before a fall, and that's probably true. But that prideful feeling was, at that time, backed up by the habits and behavior of American industry in general. The beginning of this war starts with Edison's patents, but it was the bad corporate habits he picked up at Western Union and the complicated situation he was placed in when he started dabbling in the machinery to make movies that really started this war. I've discussed the issues of Edison's process of invention as well as his patent problems in previous episodes. I've mentioned the various people who immediately came before him in developing the kinetoscope, but much of this was told some time ago, so I'll go into a bit of a refresher as Edison's lawyers march off to legal war. One problem is that all of us tend to think of the invention process as something done alone. America has always encouraged that belief, the one about the lone artist in his loft, the lonely writer in his room, and the crackpot genius inventor in his garage or carriage house. And while you may be isolated doing these things, that doesn't mean you live a lonely life, and it doesn't even mean that you're doing this alone. When Edison lived in Boston, he rented space in a facility that housed a number of inventors working on projects. It's hard not to believe that some people shared tools, suggestions, dreams, and even ideas. 
it's also hard not to believe that a few partnerships were born in these situations. And when Edison left Boston, it was primarily due to a lack of investors, not a lack of intellectual companionship. It's just that there were so many more people in New York City willing to invest in a new idea. The goal of every inventor is not to become famous, but to profit from his invention. Profiting does not mean getting wealthy, but being able to maintain your independence while you continue inventing. As a telegrapher, Edison was geographically independent since every telegrapher bounced around from location to location, kind of like retail store managers. But he was still employed by one main company, Western Union. When he worked in Boston and New York, he was still working for Western Union. And when he started to develop machinery independently, his major client was Western Union. His move towards inventor independence followed in the footsteps of Elijah Gray, an important mechanical inventor at that time. Edison never mentioned this, but his path to independence followed many of Gray's steps. The only difference is that Gray moved to the Midwest while Edison stayed near New York City. If things had stayed the same over the decades, Edison would have probably been happy making updates on the telegraph and working on site accounts. This leads to a big misconnect between our age and Edison's times. It's become fashionable to knock Edison because he was not as scientifically brilliant as he claimed to be. And if you had confronted him about he not being the sole creator of the light bulb, he probably would have said, yeah, you're right. He'd probably then tell you not to believe everything you read in the newspapers, even though they repeatedly canonized him whenever one of his inventions appeared. Edison's reputation was created by the newspapers, and that may have been because he was much more friendly with reporters than were most inventors. He also gave them news to report, with most of it being lists of what he was working on and what these machines could accomplish. Despite what people now say, he rarely, if ever, claimed sole credit for these inventions. That credit was given to him by the newspapers. He just never bothered to correct them. Just because he was the first to patent an idea doesn't mean that he was the only one who worked on it. It only meant that he was the most aggressive at getting the idea patented. He knew the patent process better than most people, even most inventors, and he would freely admit all this. After all, as I said earlier, the point of all inventors was not to make a lot of money, but to profit from your own work. Not to be the first, or the best, or the only one. Like Edison said, it was almost all work, not genius. 99% perspiration 1% inspiration. This work included a lot of research, and that research included going through a large number of books and scientific journals. He was aware of what other scientists were doing. He also had lawyers in Washington, D.C. doing patent research for him. Why not? Every other major company did that. Edison knew how to play the game as it was then played, 
And that process has not changed that much in the last century and a half. If there is any complaint, it probably should be leveled at the process itself. In a published paper about the patent wars, Harold Wallace placed much of the blame on America's patent procedures rather than on inventors who simply knew how to use the rules. He said, Inconsistent rulings, the leaden pace of court proceedings, the ability to obtain patent reissues meant that questions concerning legal rights over assets were often never really settled. He also said that Thomas Edison and other pioneers of motion picture technology used the patent office and the courts to their best advantage in securing broad interpretations of patent claims. This observation about broad interpretations points to a number of major problems within the patent office itself, as well as the judge's ruling on them. Among those problems was the rules of the process, the ability of experts to game the system, occasional corruption within the patent office, and a lack of knowledge about inventing concerning the judges who would eventually rule on these cases when they came to court. In this last point, some judges favored Edison simply because of his reputation, and many of them did not understand the consequences of their decisions. As for the patent itself, it should be about the specifics of the invention, and it needs to be accompanied by illustrations. Occasionally, a prototype of the machine was included, leaving the patent office to become almost as big a repository of stray American artifacts as is the Smithsonian. The specifics of the patent need to include how the machine works and what it is supposed to accomplish. The patent office then proceeds to check your machine against others that are like it to determine whether there is something unique about it. After all, there have been umpteen mechanical potato peelers that have ended up in the patent office, and yours better have something unique or a patent won't be issued. I think I've mentioned a number of times that Edison was not that interested in the moving picture machines or the process. As far as he was originally concerned, he probably would have been better off not dealing with it at all. But there were a small number of issues that pushed the moving picture process forward at the Edison lab. At first, Edison had found himself between major projects. The one that he was wrapping up was the power and electric light issue. The one that he was going to start investigating was the mining project. Both projects took him away from his lab and left others in charge. Dixon was Edison's benchman at the lab when the Wizard of Menlo Park was out with the mining companies. When Dixon wasn't supervising or working on the mining project, he was to spend his time working on the moving picture machines. It was a filler job. Another reason for Edison's commitment to the movies was the collapsing economy of the early 1890s. There came a time when it was just about the only thing that Dixon had to work on. And like on a number of other stray projects, Edison may have stumbled into it due to others. Sometimes he became enchanted with the wild goose chases he read about in the scientific journals, and he may have believed that others were wrong and he could simply prove himself right. 
This seems to have been what happened when he absent-mindedly stumbled into recorded sound. Even the light bulb issue seems to have developed that way. Looking at the list of Edison patents, you can see a string of applications for the mining process from the early and mid-1890s. In total, there would be 53 patents for that process. Other major projects had many more. His work with the electric light bulb and the electrification of New York City comprised 424 patents, and the battery project, which followed his work with the mining industry, totaled 147 patents. His work with sound recording ended up with 199 patents. Don't forget that much of this work was accomplished by his laboratory assistants, but that credit goes to his company. That's standard operating procedure in all labs. Compare all that to his work with the movie machines. Nine patents, and only three of them were filed in the 1890s. One was for the kinetoscope. One was for the kinetograph. That kinetograph was the camera that was to make the movies for the kinetoscope. It would later be transformed into the projecting kinetoscope, his most successful projector at the time. The last patent was for his attempt at the intermittent device, a gear he called the stopping device. That's it. The other six patents would come in the 20th century and would apply to later advancements. So why were there only three movie machine patents before 1900? Because everything else on the machine was already patented or borrowed from ideas that were as old as the hills. For example, there were attempts to patent the Latham Loop by one projector inventor until the elderly Woodville Latham proved that the concept was originally his. Then there is the intermittent device, which was very similar to a device used in sewing machines. It could easily be proved that Etienne Jules Murray had developed the concept of the multiple image camera, and you could even take that further back to Jules Janssen. Then there was the work that Auguste Le Prince did that was filed in both the U.S. and British patent offices. Lenses were several hundred years old by that time, and the concept of the camera obscura was even older. Even the camera film had its problems. In 1904, Edison would patent a camera film that met his specifications. But in the years before, it was strictly a Kodak product, and even they lost a fight in court. George Eastman, or his chemists, never bothered to investigate whether the nitrocellulose formula they had devised had ever been developed previously. It had, by Reverend Goodwin in New Jersey, and he had patented it. That lawsuit was battled around for years. Thomas Edison Lori Dixon, Norman Raff, Frank Gammon, Thomas Armat, Charles Jenkins, Marvin Kasler, and all the rest would find themselves sued, served, in court, and on the wrong end of patent cases between 1898 and 1915. Hiddle Wallace said, The process of obtaining and defending patent rights, combined with the lack of copyright protection for films, greatly encouraged unproductive forms of competition. 
And I could add that all of this was due to the lack of anyone thinking that anything in this process was worth more than the money they collected at the time. Edison's patent on the kinetoscope was filed in July of 1891 and was issued close to two years later in March of 1893. That would have allowed it to appear at the Chicago Columbian Exposition if Edison had had any machines ready. The stop device patent was filed about nine months after the kinetoscope application, and its patent was issued just ahead of the kinetoscope. Then there was the kinetograph, Edison's private camera used to film movies. The patent was filed at the same time as was the kinetoscope patent, but it was rejected. The patent office didn't give an explanation, but it's assumed that, like I had previously mentioned, way too much of the machine depended upon older ideas. In other words, there was nothing mechanically unique about a machine that could make moving pictures. Edison reapplied for his patent at the end of 1893, and it was again rejected in October of 1895. That last date would have been around the time that the kinetoscope was failing in its market, and Armat and Jenkins were attempting to promote their phantoscope. Six months later, it would be used at Coster and Biles as the vitoscope. Edison needed a patent on his new projector, so the kinetograph patent was resurrected, altered, and submitted a week before the Coster and Bile premiere, and it was accepted at the end of 1896. In other words, Edison submitted a patent application on a moving picture camera in order to gain a patent on a moving picture projector, and he got away with it. The people at the Mutoscope Company reacted to Edison's good news. This included Lori Dixon. Since he left the Edison organization, there had been bad blood, and it's common to believe that it was Edison who resented Dixon's renegade creation of another movie machine company. But a person cannot rule out the problems that existed between Lori Dixon and William Gilmore who was the manufacturing company's supervisor at that time. It's possible that it was Gilmore who would push the vendetta against Dixon and Mutoscope rather than Edison, or maybe it's a combination of the two. Dixon had devised a machine so dissimilar to the kinetoscope that it would have been impossible for Edison to win a lawsuit against Mutoscope on the grounds of patent violations. The kinetoscope used electricity to drive the films and illuminate them as each image passed by. The mutoscope's images were on photocards and were animated by the use of a hand crank. It seems that the appearance of the competitive mutoscope company aggravated the Edison people more than just about anything that Dixon had done. But while the mutoscope was holding its own against the kinetoscope, by early 1897, both the Mutoscope Company and the Edison Company finally understood that the real money was in projectors, not peephole machines. Dixon also knew that Edison had a camera that was used for filming, because he, Dixon, had helped design and build it. Dixon also knew that if he was going to avoid a patent lawsuit from the Edison Company, 
he would need to devise a system that worked differently. That was the birth of the biograph camera and projector. Those two biograph machines would depend upon a much larger size of film and use a pressure system to pull the film rather than a gear system. Much also depended upon whether Edison got approval for that patent on his camera. Dixon knew the camera got rejected back in 1892 because he was there at the time. So when Edison used the old camera patent form to apply for a patent on his new projector, which was actually the Jenkins and Armat Fantascope that Armat had sold him, Dixon suspected something fishy. The application was submitted on the very last day possible, in April of 1897, and it was approved in December. As far as Dixon and Mutoscope were concerned, Edison was filing an old patent application that had been rejected, but was now using it on a new machine. Wording had been changed on the application in order to make it relevant, and as I've said in the past, there is a general similarity between cameras and projectors. Marvin Kasler filed an appeal to deny the issuing of a patent to Edison due to the fact that the application was actually an old one and had been denied. Their appeal was denied, and a month later, Edison was issued a patent on his new projector. In early 1898, the war started and it's with this projector that Edison started to do battle. If you look at the Edison patent for his camera, you'll see that it lacks a lot to be a projector. There is that small stop gear that advances the film, but it certainly isn't anything as complex as the intermittent device that others use. Also, there's no motor, as there was with the kinetoscope. But Edison's doesn't appear to be that way. Also, there is no light, but all of the projectors at that time were using magic lantern light sources to illuminate their films. The patent for the Fantascope belonged to Thomas Armat, and he had to settle the controversy that his partner, Charles Jenkins, had started. The two men applied for a patent on the Fantascope back in the late summer of 1895, but Jenkins soon messed things up by reapplying for the patent later that year with his name alone. The first people that the Edison Group went after was a small outfit known as the International Film Company. The company had been organized by Charles Webster, who had briefly worked with McGuire and Bacchus in London. Back in New York City, he and Edward Kuhn, who had worked at the Edison Lab, set out to sell copies of Edison films and then a projector known as the projectoscope. From Edison's point of view, he had lost a number of cases concerning the phonograph, with people like Emil Berliner being able to work around Edison's patents. It's a pretty good bet that William Gilmore had suggested something to remind him that if he didn't want to lose the moving picture business the way he was losing the phonograph business, that he'd better start moving on all these copycats, and there were several. Several sources suggest that it was a combination of both struggling movie sales 
and projector sales that forced the Edison Group to start its legal assault. Technically, the movies were becoming a greater issue than were the machines, and Edison knew that. The Edison Company sold $84,000 in film between February of 1896 and February of 1897. From the beginning, Dixon and Edison had been sending copies of their movies to the patent office, and in 1897, Dixon resumed that process and even copyrighted his films in whatever manner passed as copywriting before the copyright law of 1912. More than likely, they went after International because it was duplicating Edison films, known as duping. International quickly shut their doors. International's distributor had been McGuire and Bacchus, who were also Edison's distributor. Undoubtedly, they did so as a way to make money, and they may not have even considered the legal ramifications of selling duped films, especially duped films of one of their main clients. But McGuire and Bacchus agreed to stop selling duped Edison films, as well as international films projectoscope. It wouldn't matter anyways, the company had folded. Curiously, McGuire and Bacchus who had set up connections in London during the kinetoscope era, now moved their business to London, where they would import Edison films to Europe and conveniently export European films to America. That would be how Milliers would get a foothold in America. Shortly after, the Edison lawyers went after Sigmund Lubin and Edward Amitt. Lubin was primarily known for making staged fight films that recreated famous boxing matches, but he too also made other films. Some of those were inspired by Edison films, while others were outright dupes. These were actualities of varying types. Lubin was not unlike the people at International Film, but he was also wilier. He soon shut down his business and took off for Europe, but he would return when things were a bit cooler and started all over again. While Lubin was not too far away in Philadelphia, Amit was in Chicago. When Amit countersued, it moved the hearing to Chicago, forcing Edison and his East Coast lawyers to drop the suit. This gives the impression that Edison was less concerned about getting his money back than he was in intimidating these people and shutting them down. Amit stayed in business. The Edison lawyers then went after Eden Musay and his manager Richard Holloman, producers Claw and Erlinger, and producer Augustin Daly. They were all involved in the Passion Play film projects. McGuire and Bacchus suggested to Holloman that he turn his film over to Edison, and that more than likely the suit would be dropped. When Holloman agreed, his passion play continued to be distributed by the Edisons, and they got their cut. After that, Edison went after bigger fish. These were Vitagraph and Mutoscope Biograph. Actually, Vitagraph wasn't a big fish at all at the time. Their production was small, so this suit seemed to fit in more with the suits against the exhibitors showing the passion plays than with the others. 
The problem had been that they were making so little that they had turned to duplicating Edison films and selling them on the side. These films were dupes of Spanish-American war footage and will be discussed in a later episode of this podcast. After McGuire caught them in the act of selling these dupes, the suit was filed. Like with Holloman, an agreement with the nearly broke Blackton and Smith allowed them to sell their own self-made films on the side, with a cut going to Edison. The Mutoscope suit was something else. It's not known whether Edison or Gilmore would have agreed to a compromise with him. At the same time, of all these early upstarts in film, they had the strongest case, and it would go on for close to a decade. No compromise was reached at this time. Mutoscope had lawyers and countersuits started to fly. The Biograph projector was nothing like the Edison projector, nor was the film. The Mutoscope machine was nothing like the dying kinetoscope. Everything was designed to resist any attack by Edison and his lawyers. Only patent office corruption or legal misrepresentation could ruin it for them. Still, Edison had a bank of lawyers, and this would be a race to see how much money each side could spend. This attack by the Edison people was also a bit naive. Why would they attack a group with a strong case against them? Was it also just to intimidate and to shake them down for money? In all of these cases, the issue was more about the money being made from movies than from the machines themselves. But the weapon the Edison company was using was the patent. It would be the Mutoscope case that would finally ruin Edison's attempt to use his three patents against the world of cinema. But by the time this case was settled, he would have collected others, including Armat's Fantascope patent and a few others of his own over the next decade. For now, the war had been started. But next time, we're looking at another important French film company, Gaumont, and its sole, highly innovative director, Alice Guy. Thank you for listening. Thank you.